How violent was Florida in the 1800s? Well, Florida was as violent a place as anywhere in the U.S. in the early 1800s, just as in the 21st century. Stand your ground was the dominant ethos, there was a distrust of law and government, belief in self-determination and personal rights, and tons of guns and booze, just like now. James Michael Denham literally wrote the book on crime, punishment, and their impacts on everyday citizens in Florida during the decades preceding the Civil War. A Rogue's Paradise, Crime and Punishment in Antebellum, Florida, may have been published in 1997, but wow, is it ever relevant to understanding the 21st century dynamics of crime and the justice system in the Sunshine State. Professor Denham joins us today to discuss his book and the issues it covers more generally. I'm Christopher Nank, and welcome to the Florida Book Club. I'm here with James M. Denham, author of A Rogue's Paradise, Crime and Punishment in Antebellum, Florida, and director of the Center for Florida History at Florida Southern College, where he is a professor of history. So welcome to Florida Book Club, Mike. Well, I'm very, very happy to, to be in on your new venture here. This is an exciting uh, exciting venture, and it's obviously something that really needs to be done. And uh, you're you're really fulfilling a uh, a great service to our great state of Florida. I like that you stated up front in the beginning of Rogue's Paradise, and I know this is um, you know an older book, published in 1997, and I know that your uh, your work on the topic goes even further back than that. But I did like that you you wanted to write a readable narrative history, and. Uh, and I think the subject matter really lends itself to that. I mean, most people are interested in crime and cops and punishment and things like that. But what initially sparked your interest in this subject? Well, my, my interest, um, this, uh, this book, of course, emerged from my PhD dissertation. And when, um, when I was, um, I guess, at the PhD level and even before master's level, I, I really became just really hooked on primary research. And one of the things when you're kind of searching for uh, a PhD dissertation, you soon learn that everybody's done everything already. And um, what I was really keen on is finding new information, new materials, new primary documents. And I always had kind of an interest in, um, in law enforcement to a certain extent, not really too much. But, but anyway, as I began to work in court records um, at courthouses, uh, and looking at legal documents, I was kind of interested at the time of becoming a lawyer, but I soon dis disabused myself of that pretty quickly. So anyway, when I started working on, I started working on a paper and I, I began to look at newspapers, obviously old newspapers, but also it was really intriguing to me how I could follow newspaper accounts, say a killing or a murder or some sort of other event and follow that in the court records and kind of see the different side of things maybe from the court records. So anyway, I guess what I, I'm trying to say is, is that I really had a great sense of um, curiosity about early Florida history and I was looking for um, new materials and not just diaries and letters which were available but but also other sources that would allow me to to do intensive research and, and tell um, tell a story, and I, everywhere I looked, there was really not not much work ever been done in Florida in, with regard to antebellum crime and punishment history. Um, meanwhile, I I began to read some some really interesting secondary materials literature uh, by scholars like Bertram Wyatt Brown at University of Florida, um, who wrote 
this his blockbuster book uh, in nineteen the early nineteen eighties called Southern Honor, which um, in a sense kind of defined the ethic of of Southern Honor and and how it guided and and um, directed and pushed activities and actions and behavior uh, of antebellum Southerners. So all of that as oftentimes occurs in a, in a graduate degree, began to kind of come together. And I soon discovered that there was a treasure trove out there waiting for me in county courthouses, um, roughly 12 or maybe 15 of which um, were, were, were created before the Civil War, which gave me out of 63 counties or 67 counties, about a fourth of the counties that had material, or likely would have material um, that I would be able to use. And that's kind of a long-winded answer, I guess. To that. No, no, that's perfect. Thank you. It's a very comprehensive <laughs> answer. But the idea of Florida as a frontier, can you, uh, you know, you, you make that reference a lot, and a lot of a lot of authors do in discussing, you know, what Florida was like at this time. Can you explain, like, in what, what that means in, in the context of Florida? In other words, what is, what is a frontier? A frontier is a place where, where law and order is not necessarily institutionalized by governmental activities. Um, it's a place where, um, where government is just beginning to take root. And it's a place where people are, are, are trying to survive and, and, and live um, on their own devices. Um, I tell my students in class that the Old South ended, the Old South ended uh, at the border of Marion County. Um, below that in 1860 was, was frontier. Um, and say before, before 1860, it's 1840, um, the Old South ended um, farther north up to Alachua County and so forth. So my point is, is that this was an area that was just being settled. It was an area that was really up for grabs. Uh, white people, Native American people, uh, black enslaved people were all kind of contending in this area, um, trying to survive based on the civilizations that they had known, particularly the white individuals, the civilization that they had known in say Virginia or Georgia or South Carolina or those kind of places. So it was a, it was a, a very fractious society. It was a society in which um, the rule of law and courts and all the things that we associate with civilization were just being uh, established. And that was another theme in the book that I really, uh, as time went on, really uh, enjoyed kind of developing. To give you a little background, Territory of Florida was born, of course, in 1820. Um, not until 1820, where American was American civil government established, 1821. So all of that had to be essentially kind of created out of the old uh, out of the old Spanish, which was in St. Augustine and also Pensacola, and not a whole lot in between. So when the Americans came, they they attempted in their best efforts to institutionalize as best they could uh, institutions that reflected the American, uh, the American traditions. Um, and the first individual to do that was, of course, we, Governor William Pope Duvall, who was appointed uh, for Florida's first real governor uh, in 1821. Now, 
everybody likes to say that Andrew Jackson was the first territorial governor of Florida. He was really just a commissioner. Uh, he was only here three, three or four months and only, li only lived in Pensacola, never really went anywhere else. But it was really William Pope Duvall who established Americans, American civilization, uh, as it were, to, uh, to the territory. Uh, and of course, with, by, by, um, by 1824, he, he had essentially guided and directed the establishment of the territorial capital at Tallahassee. So, um, so anyway, that's, a, that's kind of a precursor to where we're, we're really going. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I, I mean, building on that, it seems like a lot of counties you mentioned at the time didn't even seem to have secure, functional, safe jails to hold criminals even. And that, I, you know, that, that the enforcement of laws was very selective. It was up to the whims of local cops and the values of the community and not necessarily adherence to any the letter of the laws. Well, there, so <laughs> um, remember, you know, if you look at Florida, Florida only had in it, in the entire territory in 1840, Florida probably had about um, certainly less than 100,000 people, probably about 80 or 60, between 60 and 80,000 people. Um, about half of those were African enslaved African Americans and about half of the white population would be would be women so there really were the uh, enforcement of laws that were written and of course the legislative council did actually um put together a criminal code pretty quickly um but it was but an enforcement of the laws were were very very tenuous there was really no money attributed to it um the federal government appropriated very limited funds. And again, the territory is kind of the, is under control of the federal government to a certain extent. They're paying our expenses. They're paying the governor, the judges, the courts. And one of the, the big, um, one of the big first steps was to create federal courts, which when I say federal courts, they were kind of a combination of federal and, and state courts in a sense, well, territorial courts in that they also had both federal and local jurisdiction. Local jurisdiction above um, um, uh, controversies involving over, I think, $200 plus criminal, criminal, they had criminal jurisdiction as well. So it's a kind of a strange, strange um, mix between federal and state um, uh, jurisdiction. For listeners and, and people curious about, you know, this time period, it, 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 it seems like there was a, there was a difference in, in values just in terms of how laws were, like how convictions were punished. I mean, in the sense, like you mentioned that property crime seemed to be much more severely punished and frowned upon than violent crime. And, <laughs> you know, I, I, I wondered if, the, and, and in relation to that, you, you mentioned near the end of, of the book that social stability didn't matter as much to most people as their own personal circumstances or, or, you know, their right to mm -hmm. self-determination, you know, this kind mm -hmm. of, which might sound familiar to some parts of Florida today, I would imagine. Um, but yeah, why was this about the, the, like things like property crime mattering more than, than violent crime or. or well, I, I would say that the violent crime, or at least say assault and battery or fighting or that kind of thing, even murder, 
um, under the other certain under certain circumstances, um, which were far different than our than our world. It was it was based on again the honor system. If you stole, you were considered beyond the normal civilization, uh, civilized individual. Um, and again, the way to determine that that ethic really is to look at the evidence, and the evidence is court records. Okay, so and so is caught burglarizing houses or involved being involved in larceny, um, and he is whipped. He is whipped. Corporal punishment, right? Obviously, jail. But there, and, and the problem is there are no jails. The, and if there are jails, they're so easy to, to escape from that they're really kind of a farce. Plus, jails require what? They require money to feed prisoners. They require guards, which have to be paid. And again, as you probably noticed in the book, um, guards were oftentimes just kind of deputized or or drafted. <laughs> in other words, we've got this dangerous guy that might escape. So uh, congratulations, you're now a deputy. And you have to, a judge declares that you have to participate in guarding this this person, for example. And this might go on for, for weeks. Plus, or you would have to transport this guy to a court or to a jail in some other county. But yes, you look at the, you look at the, um, the sentences uh, of, of, of not only the statutes, but also what the jury, what juries would, um, would, would inflict uh, and, and the sentences. And of course, person involved in, a, in an assault and battery of which were far more numerous, far more numerous prosecuted than, than thievery. Um, they would get off with very, very light sentences, if anything. Um, the laws were on the books. They they were prosecuted, but there were very very minimal uh, results as far as con convictions go. And a lot of that has to do again with the honor code, the honor system. That is, it was deemed appropriate to respond to slights of honor or for men to defend their families or their or their property from attacks by people, and. You know, it was it was something that was ex expected and essentially um, understood to be the case. And again, every every calculation, every historical study, or, or every careful study has shown um, that Florida was as violent a place as anywhere in in the antebellum South. Florida was was, and it was because of a number of things. First, the frontier, uh, the political system, which was frankly incredibly um, chaotic, um, and I don't want to necessarily say corrupt, but I would say inefficient. Um, corrupt, of course, has a lot of different meanings to it, and a lot of, it carries a lot of, that term carries a lot of uh, weight, but um, Florida was by far the most violent um, uh, state or territory in the antebellum South, in, 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 in a region known for its violence, the South. Uh, and one of the things I wanted to mention is, with regard to that, now you mentioned um, narrative, not numbers. Now, <laughs> one of the, one of the um, things that I had to try to figure out, or at least decide from the very beginning, that I, what kind of historian did I want to become, or what was I going to, to write a book that would be quantitative, that would use quantitative analysis, which was very popular at the time. Um, regression analysis and all the complicated statistical 
um, analysis that goes with such things as crime and punishment or counting numbers of crimes and so forth. And I soon decided, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not, first, I'm not going to learn all of that stuff. Second, I'm not interested in doing it. Third, I'm just going to take my lumps if I get hammered by these quote unquote social historians, social history historians, because there was a lot of that kind of work being done at the time. And I read that stuff and it made some sense, but it was difficult to read. And I find, found myself just basically skipping all the graphs and the, and the, and the statistics and all of that other stuff because it just wasn't that interesting. And, and going into that, you talk about, you know, the idea of honor and, and, of, yes. of, and, and the violence. And it, it just seems like from reading A Rogue's Paradise, there's, it seemed like there was a lot more extra legal enforcement of laws than there yeah. were legal prosecutions. You know, if there was, you know, was there something comparable to like a stand your ground ethos? Well, that's a good question. And, and, uh, and what I'd like to do to answer that is, is by going back to the law. I didn't really have a whole lot of that in the book, but there was a principle established in English common law, which the Americans in many, in many ways, in many ways ignored. Um, something called the duty to retreat. Uh, that, is a, that was a legal concept that was established in, in English law that said if you were confronted on the road or on the highway or in the outside and with violent force, by, by someone with violent force, violent force, you have a duty to retreat. Um, and that duty to retreat is, is, a, is, is a rule that basically was established by the English. But that concept in America, not only in Florida, but in other, um, in, in other jurisdictions, particularly in the South, was, was, was basically um, ignored. In fact, it was almost the contrary. Um, and it was almost uh, the legal principle that you'd have no duty to retreat. <laughs> so, so that being said, um, there was a very hypersensitive propensity of people to take whatever slight of their honor, their character, their honesty, whatever, to take that very, very seriously and to respond in kind uh, violently. And very few juries <clears throat> in the antebellum South would convict a person who, who committed assault on someone based on uh, that kind of thing. A ver uh, in response to a verbal char uh, allegation of some sort. So um, it was different, it was far different than it is today. Um, there were no slander libel laws. Uh, the libel laws and slander laws were really not, um, not um, articulated very well if they existed at all. Um, and there was really, you know, in fact, um, Today, if something like that happens, if someone calls us a you know a name or something, or they or they um, you know do something like that, we sue them for libel and laugh all the way to the bank, right? Well, that's modern industrial society. This is far different. This is it's a far different situation uh, in this period. Um, it was it was a it was again it was a frontier society. There are very few institutional legal institutional. Uh, barriers to um, to committing violence or responding with violence. In fact, it was almost expected. Um, and again, 
the best measure of that is to look in the look in the in the court records and see the people committing the crimes or the uh, assault and batteries, and they're usually the same people that are getting elected to office. They're usually the same people that are getting a preferment of society in ways. In fact, if they if they refuse these challenges and so forth, they're likely to be ostracized in the community. And again, what I'm really leading them towards is the uh, is the institution of dueling, is the institution of dueling. And I actually wrote my master's thesis on that subject. And that's that's really actually how I got into the to the court records and began to discover that all of this, you know, was 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 in the court records and so forth. So so dueling, yes, um, was an example of that, but only among the more refined individuals. Yeah, I, I mean, and on top of that, you, which you've alluded to, you know, previously, is that there seemed like there were there, you know, very vague distinctions among lawmen, crooks, juries, everyday citizens, political can like people could have been any one of those things at right. any point, and it wouldn't disqualify you from. Well, dueling, dueling in Florida became, dueling became such a problem that the state legislature or the territorial legislature tried to pass laws against it, but it was entirely, they were entirely ineffective. Um, but on the other hand, the other issue that, that you, you kind of open up is the, the idea of lawmen having any kind of sense of professionalism. Now, law, uh, sheriffs, people who are elected sheriffs um, were oftentimes illiterate, oftentimes not, um, certainly not trained in any kind of thing. The, the whole idea of professional lawmen was, would have been alien to Americans really until the 1930s or 40s, frankly. There was no professional notion of, 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 of law enforcement really. It was a matter of, of political and and, and engagement of the citizenry. Every citizen had a responsibility under this kind of ethic. Every citizen had a responsibility to participate as a juror, as a individual who might be um, summoned to arrest or to assist in the arrest of an individual, as someone who would be expected to maybe guard um, a lawbreaker. Um, this was a, it was a kind of, everybody was kind of on, in the same situation. There was really no, um, obviously, uh, judges had, had, had quite a lot of um, uh, stature, but when it came to law enforcement individuals, um, they were pretty much cut right out of the, right out of the um, citizenry. And they, they represented whatever kind of, they were, they were butchers, they were grocers, they were, um, uh, teamsters, they were whatever, whatever kind of, whatever kind of um, uh, job or or uh, or rank of citizen, and they of course were elected um, by the citizens. I'm you know, given all of this, and and as you will <laughs> mentioned too, there was were copious amounts of alcohol freely distributed and consumed, you know, on the time too. It seems to make for a volatile mix. So what would you, if you have any idea of this, what was the mindset, do you think, of the average, quote unquote, law-abiding citizen at the time? I mean, I was, I, I found myself thinking about this, like, 
where you either, I mean, from our standpoint, I think living in an environment like this, I would be in a constant state of fear and paranoia. But, but I mean, I wonder right. if to people then, did they just accept this as a way of life, you know, regardless of the worries of journalists or, you know, government officials who decried this state of mind? Like, what, what did everyday people kind of think of this state of affairs? I mean, people clearly moved to Florida and could thrive there to some degree. Well, every, everyday people essentially accepted the status quo, I would imagine, but expected um, these elected officials to do their jobs. And of course, if they didn't, and they were always being criticized, harassed, et cetera, um, and not living up to the mandates of what, we don't have a whole lot of evidence of, of complaints uh, other than coming out of the newspapers. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that most, most um, citizens accepted the fact that that if you live on a frontier, you're expected to really be on your own resources. Um, and um, they didn't really expect a whole lot from their government, uh, from their, particularly when it came to law enforcement. Now, the courts, of course, were a little different. Um, the courts were very, very important to, um, as a civil, to function civilly. Um, and, but when it came to law enforcement, um, it, unless they people lived in in larger cities, which there weren't any in Florida, of course, um, um, I think they more or less accepted the situation as well, kind of just the way things were. And Southerners in general did not like governmental institutions. Um, we always talk about uh, people in the South relying on states' rights. Well, that's true, that's for sure, and not liking the federal government. But people that lived outside the state capital did not like the state government either. <laughs> so the, the county didn't like the, didn't like the state and were constantly, you know, suspicious of the state charging them too much in taxes or not adequately protecting them from the Indians. Now, this was the other thing that was most of concern, and that was protection from the Indians and also um, the question of slavery, making sure that slavery was um, was um, that people were protected from the possibility of an outbreak of, of slavery. So slavery is really the thing that kind of, um, one of the things that, that, that we need to remember here is that slavery was, was, was an overarching institutional circumstance that reflected everyone's ideas about everything, okay? About the national government, uh, about the local scene, about the economy, um, about public safety, so slavery itself really was always involved in whatever thinking that, that was going on about anything, um, whether it be the economy or the social life or the polit political system or relations between the, the territory and the federal government, um, trade, uh, you name it. Gotcha. Yeah, that's... Uh... <laughs> It just seems so, in some ways, so far, obvi in obvious ways, so far removed from what Florida is now. But I, oh, I, so I think you can you can see remnants of the mindset and some of that ethos, you know, of, of self-determination yes. and personal rights. I mean, it, it still seems to attract people who have uh, you know, these very strong beliefs about about that. I wanted to. These are uh, you mentioned about about. Um, slavery, you know, which we hadn't really touched on there. And one of the mm -hmm. things that I thought was pretty fascinating and great job on the appendices, by the way, that was fascinating. That was 
mainly where I, I couldn't believe how few convictions there were for any of these crimes. But I, I did discover like there were a lot of, you know, that the, the blacks, slaves would, would, could, would, had access to a lot of, um, you know, the, 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 all the benefits of the legal system and that, and that whites could be right. criminally prosecuted for harming or killing slaves, which I, I got to admit, I was a, not really aware of that. Well, remember that that's, that's uh, a law that's, that's a law that's on the books, but there are all, all kinds of caveats to that. If it could be proved that there was any kind of um, resistance to a white person's uh, direction or a person killed in the, in the activity of, of rebellion or that kind of thing. So there are all kinds of caveats about that situation. And, and also, the remember, the laws that were put on the books regarding these issues were really put there not for the protection of the slaves. They were put there for the protection of property rights of the masters. Okay. Um, there were attempts, however, by judges in, in, the, in, in Florida, but also in other southern states to, to demonstrate, try to demonstrate to the outside world that while slavery was an institution that was, that seemed to be out of accord with American values, that, um, and this of course is in reaction to accusations of that by Northerners, that it that slavery was a paternalistic institution and it was uh and it was the duty of masters and the legal system to protect those who are more vulnerable in a paternalistic way and that that you can see that in the court records and it also in, in some of the opinions of judges who are ruling in cases regarding uh regarding enslaved people now um um, most cases when it came to almost, almost, well, 90% or it's hard to quantify, but the vast majority of cases of, of, of slaves committing crimes per se, never reached the courts. They were usually handled, you know, s silently by the master and whoever was the wrong victim or whatever else. But statutes did, um, specifically direct that when the enslaved people were, were accused of a capital offense, and remember a capital offense back then was not just murder, it was also rape, arson, rebellion, um, probably things that I'm not thinking of, that that individual had to be, by law, had to be represented by legal counsel. Um, and that, that did apply. And again, there are many cases, several cases in Florida in which that did occur with success, but also with, you know, with, with the enslaved person being convicted. Um, so that, that, that being said, some scholars have argued, and there's a, um, a wonderful scholar by the name, um, escapes him right now. He's a, uh, individual who argues that, African-Americans and enslaved people got a better shake when it came to the law in the antebellum period than they did after the Civil War. Um, well, that may be so, frankly, but again, we have to remember that that in large part is due to the property rights of the master, uh, the property rights of the master and, um, and the concern that, that their property rights be, uh, be, um, be protected. Part of that also, the rationale there also is to, 
is to prevent masters from trying to shield their property from prosecution. In other words, um, having the master cooperate with apprehension and, and prosecution of the enslaved person. If he, um, if, uh, and if, if uh, the individual was convicted, he would be reimbursed the the value of the of, of the enslaved person. I think that's what the statute directed. So, all of these laws um, regarding enslaved people were fashioned at the state level. A lot there's a lot of cooperation among Southern slave states in terms of sharing um, sharing statutes and so forth. And this entire system, of course, uh, of, of, of slavery, the legal system developed over over a hundred years of of of, um, of legal history of that of that subject. So it's very complicated. All right. Well, we're almost done, but I had I had one further question for you that I think was just more, I think what something listeners might be interested in. You could make it a teaser for mm-hmm. people who want to read the book. Mm-hmm. But what was to contemporary audiences, perhaps, what was the most outrageous or incredible story from this period that you researched for this book? I was thinking about that. Um, and it's funny you say that because I discovered a, an incident during this research that occurred in, in Key West in which a, imagine, a Mexican naval officer assassinating the U.S. attorney of the Southern District of Florida in 1829. And and this was such a shocking event, not really just murdering him, but assassinating him. And I thought, my goodness, what, there's got to be a story to this. But it stuck with me. And, um, and I soon discovered that this person who assassinated the U.S. attorney in Key West, who was a naval figure, who was in the U.S. Navy, later the, at that time the Mexican Navy, and then became first commodore of the Texas Navy in 1836, um, obviously he got off, is the basis of a whole book that I'm writing right now. And I'm, all morning I was reading, I'm reading through drafts of chapters. So I oh, guess wow. the... Uh, um, of William Allison McRae, the U.S. Attorney of, of Southern District of Florida, uh, by Captain Charles E. Hawkins, um, is one of my more interesting cases. And of course, that that case obviously went on for about two years. Uh, Hawkins was was um, eventually released. The event involved romance um, in the tropics. Um, and adultery, Cuba, and all of these exciting things that we associate with, with, I guess, Hollywood. I'm not saying that this book is going to be Hollywood, but it's an interesting case that it it drew my attention to the point that it took, it, it, it is involved 25 more years of research, which involves Mexico, um, the Gulf of Mexico, New Orleans, uh, Virginia, New York, and it's all about honor. It's all about honor, every bit of it. The other thing I was going to mention is there were in Florida roughly four or five of these bloody assassinations in which there had been, you know, recriminations, fights, duels leading up to this, um, newspaper attacks of uh, various kinds leading to these bloody assassinations. 
It's all about the blood. <laughs> With that, I, th I think that's a good note to end on. <laughs> this sort of emblematic of, of what you'll find in this book. It's it's just completely rife with with similar incidents and and. I think it stands pretty well. You know, it's been twenty. Gosh, it's been yeah, it's been about twenty years, and I think it stands up pretty well. People are still reading it, um, and it it serves also as a I think a pretty good history of Antebellum Florida. There isn't there isn't a good history of Antebellum Florida even now. Um, I think it's a pretty good history of antebellum Florida through the criminal justice system and how the how the um, how the how the territory and then the state basically grew and developed and um, pushed south into the into the peninsula by the time of the Civil War. Yeah, and and I'll tell you this: it certainly gives you um, a window into like how uh, hard it would be for present-day Floridians to survive in that kind of environment. I think. Too. Remember, no mosquito, no no mosquito control, no air conditioning. Yep, exactly. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, Mike James M. Dunham, thank you for joining us, and you're now a member of the Florida Book Club. Well, I appreciate it, and I'm, I really hope to come back again sometime. Thanks for attending this meeting of the Florida Book Club. Antebellum Florida sure sounds like the good old days, right? It's nuts to think that people would want to move to a place this chaotic and unsettled, especially before the days of air conditioning. One might argue that Florida in 2021 is still chaotic and unsettled and in love with booze, gambling, and guns, but at least we have AC now. There's a link to purchase A Rogue's Paradise on our website if you want to read more about the Wild South in the decades before the Civil War. Remember to support your local independent bookstores and public libraries. See you at our next meeting.